This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Joining today is Usha Tamalanara. She is the PhD Program Director of Counseling Psychology for Boston College and is currently conducting research on mental health and trauma within immigrant communities. We discuss the various effects that can occur when adjusting to a different culture, what mental and emotional costs that may take place, her approach to treatment, and how society and culture can better tend to immigrant needs in order to help smooth their transition to a new country. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us beyond borders. Much of your research circles around mental health and trauma within immigrant communities. You focus your work on cultural competence in psychotherapy. What does implementing cultural competence look like? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, cultural competence was a term that was developed in the 1980s and developed further into the 90s and into the present. I feel like it's a constantly evolving kind of idea, um, certainly within psychology. And from my perspective, cultural competence is a process. You know, it's not some necessarily an end outcome only. Hopefully the process will lead to better outcomes uh, for all people and from all different backgrounds, but it is a process of engaging, developing knowledge and skills to uh, work with people from all different backgrounds. It's not only for people of color. It is not only for immigrants or racial minorities, but it's really about recognizing our history as a country and the history of different groups and experiences of different cultural groups to recognize our shared histories, but also what's unique to individuals within those communities. It, it also, cultural competence also includes recognizing our own socialization around issues like race and culture and social class and sexual orientation. It's a way of trying to um, think about how were we raised, what kinds of messages have we received and internalized, and therefore what kind of biases might we carry with us, and all of us carry some kind of bias. We would be kind of fooling ourselves if we thought that we were free of that. Right. Um, so, yeah, so cultural competence also requires self-reflection, you know, mm. and a sense of introspection as well uh, when we work with others and try to understand and be helpful to others. Right. Um, so talking about that introspection, what is your approach in treatment when you're dealing with clients implementing that cultural competence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think as a as a therapist, uh, certainly, and as a researcher, too, you know, I would say this mm -hmm. happens with any role that I have or carry. Um, and as an educator, having to really think about what my own position might be my own social position, the privilege that I might carry, the marginalized kinds of experiences that I've had personally, all of these things are things that I need to deeply think about. And first of all, see how they have affected me, both the opportunities and the challenges that I have. And then how do they interplay? How do they intersect with those of the client or those of the participant in research studies? Um, or those of my students and colleagues. A lot of issues around race, culture, context, they play themselves out in the interpersonal space and um, how we relate to each other. So I pay a lot of attention to sort of the self-reflection as it relates to my connection and interpersonal interactions with other people. So that's certainly a part of what we 
think about around cultural mm -hmm. competence. You have to take in their full life experience, right? And there's so many aspects to your human experience and maybe a portion of it is gender and that plays a role. Orientation, that may play another percentage of a role. Your, your race, your background, your religion, your spirituality, right? Um, so it's yeah. taking in all those different subsets that sort of make up your experience and, and incorporating it into the practice. Yes. I mean, I'm so glad you used the term full experience because mm -hmm. that really resonates with how I think, I think in general, because it's, it's not, <laughs> right. you know, we're, we're not partial human beings, you know, where we have a full set of experiences that are often unseen by others, you know, right. and part of, and part of that happens because I think people carry stereotypes, you know, about each other. And those stereotypes often end up being filters for what we're actually listening for and hearing mm. uh, when we interact with someone. And so what ends up happening is that it limits our ability to see that full experience, to really listen for that full experience. And so what we end up seeing is sort of like partial experiences that we're actually developing theories and practices using those partial experiences rather than really seeing um, the full experience, the whole experience of the person. Right. And I think this is, this is true through many fields, um, not mm -hmm. just psychotherapy, but when people who are, let's say the thought leaders who have fundamental principles for a universal structure, right? Uh, if X happens, then Y it follows, right? But not taking in the full experience of all humans. So you're making a universal structure with a, a, mm -hmm. a minority perspective, right? Um, yes. Now, just uh, as we were talking about in, in this time, you know, we're starting to broaden that horizon and peel back those layers and peel back the veil of, okay, what is the, the total view of things? My experience may be different from yours, but it's, it's a part of that total experience, right? None of those voices, nobody's experiences or voices or ideas should be left out because then you miss a piece mm -hmm. of the pie, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's sort of like you have this partial narrative, you know, partial mm -hmm. truth, really. Um, you don't mm -hmm. have the full picture. You don't have everybody's voice included and considered um, and valued. You know, right. I, even if we hear it, sometimes we might think, well, that's not as relevant to me or right. not, as, not as important. Right. So that's the other that's thing is sort of like the valence we place on, you know, some narratives versus others. Like that is, you know, and what ends up happening when we don't value mm -hmm. certain narratives or subgroups of people that mm -hmm. we end up dehumanizing people you know it's sort of um one example of that is how the narrative around immigrants has been flowing over the last few years you know right. and if you have messages that you're hearing over and over again you know that are negative stereotypes or just negative and false uh you know narratives what we end up having is you know even if we reject it sort of thinking okay i don't believe that personally we're still internalizing those yeah, narratives. Absorbing it. We're, mm -hmm. we're absorbing it. It's all around us. And I think when you hear it over and over and over again, 
that actually has a powerful way of infiltrating how we think unconsciously, even if, we, if it's not a conscious level thing, it is affecting us in the unconscious level. That's dangerous. We need to watch out for that. And I think that's happened. Those kinds of narratives have been around forever about race as well, uh, mm -hmm. that people have been internalizing it, whether they consider themselves consciously sort of more progressive or, you know, uh, more aware unconsciously. Um, these are still the narratives, the dominant narratives. Right. Um, and that kind of leads into one of my questions in terms of like, how can society and culture better tend to immigrant needs to help mm -hmm. smooth their transition? Because if I'm coming from a country and from a family set in a, a ideology that's vastly different from American mainstream idea, um, mm -hmm. that's, that's a, a serious transition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there are many different things that come to my mind about that. Uh, one has to do with, I think about children and adults somewhat differently, but overlapping, um, mm -hmm. you know, because sure. oftentimes for kids, when they're transitioning into a new cultural environment, they're, they're moving into a new educational system. Oftentimes they're moving into a, a new language uh, sometimes. Um, and certainly different cultural norms around the way people interact. And um, so if I just look at a school as a microcosm, there are a lot of things about uh, language and culture that are different, even around simple things like humor. Um, you know, so mm. when kids <laughs> right. joke around, you know, yeah. people joke around differently. I said many a bad jokes and yeah. <laughs> just fell on deaf ears. I was like, well, I guess I read the room wrong. So, yeah. Right. So there, mm. there are these, I think people often just, kind of focus on what are the bigger cultural, noticeable cultural differences or racial differences. But oftentimes it's like these nuanced, you know, aspects of interactions that are going unnoticed, you know, and oftentimes kids who are immigrants or children of immigrants tend to be, they're not sort of openly asked to talk about themselves as a whole person, as we were saying earlier, if anything, they get called on to talk about their culture of origin or, you know, become a spokesperson. And this is a big problem because they are in a bind. You know, um, they're often in this kind of impossible dilemma of, well, if I answer that question, my speaking in this broad term that is now going to lead to a stereotype or contribute to a stereotype. Right. Um, Generalize right. my whole group. Right. Right. Yeah. Or. If I don't speak, will I be seen at all? You know, will I just become invisible if I don't talk about it at all? And so they kids are often kind of stuck stuck between having to kind of explain and educate other people and on the other on the flip side, not being kind of seen at all, um, you know, and or valued in, in the same way. So there's I think there are ways in which we we can if we think broadly as a society, what are we asking of immigrants? What are we expecting of immigrants? How can, you know, school curricula, for example, how can school curricula reflect a more um, inclusive history of the United States, for example? Um, how can they, including that of immigrants and racial minorities, which tends not to be a big focus in our history curriculum, for example, um, or in our science classes, the contributions of racial minority scientists. And, you know, often these things are kind of left 
on the side. So from a policy perspective, I think there's a lot that can be done to change what's taught and what people are actually exposed to so that that one immigrant doesn't become a spokesperson for the entire country of origin or culture of origin or the heritage culture or the language. So there are a lot of different levels that I think about that, but I'm just giving you one example and that's, you know, schools in particular. Mm -hmm. And also that feels limiting. They only asked me to be the panel on minority discussions, but I want to talk about chemistry and philosophy just in whole, not Mm -hmm. black people in chemistry, not just black philosophers, right? Um, And you kind of have that W.E.B. Du Bois would say that double consciousness, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We have our set of culture and identity and understanding, but this larger culture, I have to think in their way too, right? So you, you think in your own cultural, personal way, but then to maneuver and navigate through society, you have to think in those terms as well. So you have mm-hmm. two consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to get your idea about a, a lot of immigrants who didn't have that background and let's say second generation and they come over, it might be easier to to assimilate but then you also want to hold on to your parents and your ancestors culture mm-hmm. what is that balance what is what are the calculations happening there yeah such an important um, process mm-hmm. you know that kind of results from immigration mm-hmm. um you know oftentimes uh i'm glad you brought up the idea of double consciousness mm-hmm. you know um dubois amazing um conceptualization because it's um, there, there is a way in which the set of expectations outside of one's home or or community are in conflict with what's happening at home or within the community. So it's, you know, there is a way in which many times people develop immigrants, certainly develop a sense of dual identity. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a psychoanalyst named Alan Rowland who wrote about that. This idea of dual identity where you're, kind of walking this tightrope, you know, bicultural tightrope. And in my own thinking, I kind of see it as the two worlds sometimes become split off from each other, you know, so that, um, so it's not just externally that you're functioning in these different contexts, but internally, there's kind of a split that occurs unconsciously, Mm -hmm. you know, where you don't necessarily know who your full self is, because you kind of learn how to operate in these different ways in different places not because you're necessarily consciously doing that. You might have at one point in your life, but then it becomes largely automatic, you know, um, or unconscious. And you don't necessarily even realize it's happening. Um, But these different contexts are kind of requiring different things from you. And you want to stay connected to both most of the time, that both can be really critical and important to identity and to mental health, you know, to be able to be, connected and not completely disconnect from one or the other. But the conflict or the dilemma sometimes comes up when you're trying to figure out what, how do you bring these different worlds together right. and can they even integrate? Is that even possible? Right. Um, mm. And sometimes it's not. In some cases, a person may feel as rejected within their community as they do outside of their community right. for different reasons. And so um, those become, 
incredibly traumatic situations because where does, you know, where is home then, you know, where do you go to find, you know, to feel like you can refuel in some way uh, to feel held and supported in some way. It's a, a very normal process, this negotiation between these various contexts uh, for, I think, most, if not all immigrants. But at the same time, it can also reach a traumatic level if there is marginalization that occurs within a community or within the home, as well as out from the outside. Right. And I think that moves into some of your writings. Uh, you, you often cite the term culturally imposed trauma. Um, could you give us an example of what that could look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, so trauma that is sociocultural uh, in nature, this, you know, it's interesting because when we have the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, this is a diagnosis that is in our psychiatric manual of mental disorders. It locates those symptoms that people develop in a traumatic event. The traumatic events have typically included things like war trauma, combat trauma, um, trauma that one might experience, you know, due to sexual assault. Uh, that's actually now included in the latest uh, manual. But we don't include racial trauma. We don't include political trauma. And so sociocultural trauma of that type is not included in how in what we actually consider as a precipitant to traumatic stress. And this, and so some of us in the field of psychology and other fields are trying to bring this to the foreground, to bring it to the public's attention that, in fact, when we experience racism uh, cumulatively or a racialized event, uh, politically based or religious uh, types of discrimination that happen over and over again, that, in fact, whether it's subtle or explicit or blatant, that all of that actually impacts our mental health, impacts um, us in ways that closely resemble traumatic stress of other types uh, that we have in our manual of mental disorders. So this is what I'm talking about, you know, with regard to sociocultural or culturally imposed trauma, that this is rooted in our society. So where does the pathology lie? Is it in the individual who's experiencing the symptoms, which are, you know, very ordinary responses to extraordinary events, or are we locating it, or should we be locating the problem in our broad, in our broader uh, society, in our um, our culture, and our social structures, and our systems, and historical trauma as well? So these are things that I think we need to recognize more publicly, both in academia, and in, you know, institutions, and just in our culture more broadly. Right. Well, that was that was a mouthful. That was yeah. a mouthful. <laughs> <That's> a lot. <laughs> that, I don't know, just just in my mind that just sound like, okay, you're trying to tackle an impossible task almost. Not impossible, but it's when <clears throat> you're you're working within a system that doesn't take into account the the full experience, as we're saying. Um mm -hmm. and even if you may reject certain ideas, you still absorb the prevailing knowledge in, of, of the society at that time, right? And even as a, a practitioner, you have to even check your own preconceptions. Yes. 
when, when you're when you're dealing with a student, a patient, or another individual, uh, because you don't want to give them a, a misdirection or, or misguided advice uh, mm-hmm. because you also have absorbed some of those ideas, right? Yes. So it seems like, so that's why I said impossible, but it's, you know, but it's, it sounds like you're in a constant uh, state of checks and balances and, and, and a reflection of why am I giving this advice? What, what is the context? Am I listening to them fully or am I filling in the gaps with my own mm-hmm. preconceived notion? Yeah. 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 You, you hit it on the spot, right? So it's, you know, how, how do we even listen to each other, you know, and what place do our own filters, our own experiences, really our own very deeply personal experiences impact how we're listening and what we're listening to. And therefore the conclusions we're making based on those conclusions, how are we implementing interventions? How are we, how are we trying to help? And that's why it has such a powerful impact because it affects the very help that we're trying to provide someone, you know, so it's, it's actually an incredibly important thing. Um, There's also, I think um, it's important to recognize that we make mistakes along this journey. You know, this is something that sometimes isn't acknowledged enough when we talk about cultural competence is that we uh, somehow think we have to know the answer um, and know how to respond in every single situation in a perfectly attuned way. And in fact, that's impossible because we're human beings. And for all the reasons I've already stated, we are going to make mistakes and we have to accept that about each other and be honest about those mistakes, recognize them, allow the other person to point them out to us and also have the ability um, or develop the feeling in us that it's okay to go back and learn from that and offer something else and do something about it um, in that interaction, you know? So there's, so for example, there are some people who would say, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to bring up race because I don't want to say something offensive. And this is a very common feeling, right? I don't want to talk about that's it. That's how then, you learn. This is part of the learning process is exactly. making mistakes and then correcting. And that's, that's the only way that we improve and that we grow is by making mistakes and then doing better. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And But I think a lot of people in our country are socialized to think that it's a bad thing to talk about. It's a taboo topic. And um, I'm going to say something wrong to offend somebody, or I'm going to be seen as a racist. You know, um, I think there's a lot of anxiety. And when you think about race in particular as a traumatic issue, which it is, race itself in this country and around the world is a traumatic thing. Um, and so it makes us anxious. It makes us feel as though we have to do something to contain all the angst that and discomfort that comes with it. And yet, obviously, for people of color, that's not an option most of the right. time. We have to live with that discomfort in a different kind of way. Um, I'm still going to yeah. wake up the the same in the same skin, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every day. So that doesn't change. <laughs> no, no. Um, that's, that's very interesting. And I, and I think you're absolutely right. What was so taboo has become that thing that we want to put in the closet 
and not address. We just have it fester. <laughs> it doesn't mm -hmm. go anywhere. It just festers it. And somebody walks in and is like, what's in your closet? I hear, <laughs> what's that smell? It stinks. It's terrible. He's like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, let's just cover it up, you know, put perfume and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And, mm -hmm. uh, and once again, I keep on bringing it to today. I think we're really at, we could take this opportunity, right? It could be a watershed moment. Societies, mm -hmm. interesting enough, work kind of like individuals. Us as individuals, the aspects of ourselves that we don't like, aspects of ourselves that we feel like we're inadequate or is embarrassing or shameful, we tend to want to distract ourselves, want to look away and not deal with it and, and face whatever is bothering us. Any mm -hmm. psychotherapist or good mother will tell you, like, mm -hmm. it's never going to go away until you address it, until you face that yeah. dragon, until you face the thing that you're fearing. Once you face that, then you have an opportunity to overcome. Mm -hmm. yes. We're getting yeah. to that point where people are beginning to humble themselves and have some humility really think and listen, listen for understanding, not to respond. Yes. Yes. Yeah. If we could just listen, you know, longer, uh, without having to immediately kind of draw back on our defenses, you know, on our right. defensive positions that. It, but how do it, you do that? How do you cultivate that safe space? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, you know, I know in the context of a classroom, for example, or in a context, and that, that could be, you know, anywhere from elementary school onward. I, I don't mean just the college classroom or the graduate school classroom. Right. I mean, just, you know, any space like that, that if, if it could be facilitated in a way where, you know, people that, where the teacher, you know, the instructor really has to take that lead and say, this is something that I value, you know, and I'm not. I'm going to go ahead and take the risk of talking about things that make us feel uncomfortable sometimes. Can we respect each other, you know, while we do this, mm -hmm. even when we feel uncomfortable? Can we, you know, I do think we have to learn how to talk about it. And so whoever's mm -hmm. facilitating that discussion really needs to take responsibility for helping people to just frame the process of talking about these issues, you know, because we don't know how to talk about it in a reasonable way in this country. You know, we really don't, whether it's a big public dialogue or, you know, uh, small dialogues, we have a hard time knowing how to actually have a conversation about this. And, but to recognize that everybody is at a different place with this. Mm -hmm. And if, and that if someone expresses anger, frustration, can the group allow for that? If a person expresses feeling shamed, can they, can the group allow for that without the person being attacked? You know, once we start talking about these topics, it can sort of feel like we have to retreat back into these positions that we came in with, or we have to defend something about ourselves, our humanity, our integrity, the kind of person we are. If we move out of that space of saying that you're good if you think this way, you're bad if you think that way, you know, that polarization that we have more publicly now in our country. And I think this is where psychologists can be very helpful in some ways mm -hmm. is to how do you talk? You know, how do you actually communicate and develop a process of engaging around these issues? 
And I think that's where we need to begin, actually, before we just dive into a conversation about it. The types of calculations that immigrants or minorities in general are doing on a daily basis, it's just added variables, let's just say. <laughs> it's, just, mm -hmm. it's just more mm -hmm. variables thrown into the pot that you have to balance and you have to make sense of. I'm not into uh, psychotherapy, but I'm thinking like, man, why hasn't this been a, a bigger part or bigger focus <laughs> in research mm -hmm. uh, earlier? That just makes so much sense to incorporate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this has been a, a big issue within psychology and the world of psychotherapy is, you know, that even though there are many of us who've been working in this area uh, around cultural competence, whether it's research or practice, it's still not the mainstream practice within psychotherapy. If we look broadly, I'm certainly, along with many other colleagues, trying to work on this issue. I completely believe that this should be a core part of every psychotherapy, that this isn't just sort of something you do with ethnic minorities or racial minorities or people who are minorities of any kind. We're all dealing but with it, really, everybody. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. for everybody. Right. This is for everybody. If we move in that direction, the there would be far more credibility um, and trust in mental health professionals being able to work with clients or patients in ways that are richer, more effective, and honor, I think, the full dignity and experience of a person. Thank you to lead researcher Con Branch, assistant producers Luke Bianco and David White, and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.